Thank you, Mark. Frank, I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to speak, um, especially to a, what is this, a, a free thinker meeting, whatever whatever nomenclature you're using, and it's, uh, I, I know what you're talking about. <clears throat> I'm in that camp, and uh, um, it's been a defining, defining feature of my sobriety. Um, my name is Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I've been sober and active in Alcoholics Anonymous since December 7th, 1981. So I've been 39 years sober. Um, my, my home group is the Stratford men's group. And um, we, we just finally got back to face-to-face -face meetings uh, four weeks ago. So, and uh, we were just really gratified that 110 guys showed up at that first meeting. That's, that's, a, that's a full compliment crowd for us. And we, we break up into four different groups. We, uh, if you if you got less than six months of sobriety, uh, you you can't go to the other three meetings. You got to go to the beginners meeting, and then uh, once you got six months of sobriety, you got a choice of uh, two different discussion meetings and a step meeting. So uh, uh, we were just so happy, just so happy after over a year and a half to get back together again. Um, so I, I've, I've been going to uh, four meetings a week. Uh, one of the uh, in my group. In our in my discussion meeting, we change the guy every every week who's running the meeting, and usually it's it's the most wounded beast in the room. It's you know his sponsor said, "Dude, you need to take you need to take the can on Monday night and tell people what the hell's going on in your life." So the first thing people have to do though is to kind of qualify. So they give their sobriety date. Mine's December seventh, nineteen eighty one. Um, they talk about the fact: Do you have a sponsor? Yes, I've got actually two sponsors. I had the same sponsor for thirty five years. He died in August. 7th of 2017 and um, I got two guys to replace him and I talked to them with real regularity. I, I'm not one of those people who thinks uh, just because I've been sober a long time I don't need a second opinion with real regularity. So I check in with them. Uh, one of them I've been FaceTiming uh, every day since uh, the COVID thing started. Um, I also sponsor, I don't know, seven or eight guys that are actually actively calling me on a regular basis. No real no-comers. The, the most uh, recent, one, one, of, one of the guys, um, most recent guys probably got 12 years. Everybody else has got 20 and 30 years of sobriety and I've been, I've been sponsoring them for a long time. Um, which means that those guys feel very comfortable um, taking on the sponsor relationship if they hear me saying something that they don't think makes any sense to them. And uh, it's a real uh, community of, uh, of sharing and, um, and criticism back and forth. As my 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 button sponsor King was always fond of saying uh, that he was constitutionally incapable of being honest about himself by himself, and I, I buy into that a, a thousand percent. I, I need to be talking to people, and I need to have people talking back to me and saying, "No, that doesn't make any goddamn sense at all, Shaver. What are you, the hell are you thinking?" Um, I I've, I've lived in a world with with no supernatural elements. <clears throat> since shortly after I left the Roman Catholic Seminary when I was 19 years old. And uh, uh, so there's no, uh, no angels or devils in my, in my cosmos. There's no gods or goddesses. There's no ghosts or goblins. But I do live in a world of, of uh, I, I'm not one of those arrogant humanists or scientists think we got it all figured out. I live in a world that's just populated. I mean, it's just, um, I'm, there's mysteries everywhere. All you got to do is look at anything with a, with, with, a, with a critical squint and you realize you don't know what the hell's going on there. You know, it's just, there's mysteries everywhere in my life. So I, I, just, don't, I just don't drag in supernatural powers to explain those mysteries to myself. Um, I believe that uh, 
I believe there's two basic premises of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was I mentioned earlier. I just I just wrote a, and published a book on the writing of the big book, and it's a, it's it's a huge book. It's bigger than the big book. My wife, the lady Sarah, calls it the bigger book. And uh, but but as I was doing this really deep dive into into the big book, it it seemed to me in the end that there's there's two basic principles that Alcoholics Anonymous is offering to the suffering alcoholic as a uh, a solution to their problem, a diagnosis and a solution to the problem is twofold. Uh, I think it's like AA in a nutshell. So uh, let me let me just share you. This is my opinion, folks. But in my opinion, um, Bill Wilson's diagnosis of the problem of the alcoholic, he says the real alcoholic has no defense against the first drink. The first, uh, if you're a real alcoholic, you've got this strange mental blank spot that's going to happen to you sooner or later when you've got no booze in your body. We're not the insanity of, of, of the second step, the sanity of the second step is, the insanity is not the crazy things you did when you were drinking. The insanity is the fact that you had no booze in your body and you had probably promised your wife and your mother and your boss and your kids that you were never gonna pick up another drink and you picked up another drink. That's, that's the insanity that we're talking about here. And that's Wilson's diagnosis of the problem is that if you're a real alcoholic, you got no defense against the first drink. You're gonna pick up, a, you are gonna pick up a drink again. Because you're you're just doomed. Um, except proposition number two, that was the diagnosis. Wilson offers a solution, and his solution, as I understand it, in its essence, is you need to find for yourself a vital spiritual experience. And if you can find yourself a vital spiritual experience, um, there's a really good chance that it's going to stand very effectively between you and picking up that first drink. End of story. So we got we got a diagnosis of the problem. Real alcoholic has no defense against the first drink. Uh, solution to the problem, except one thing. You can do one thing. You get yourself a vital spiritual experience. So I come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to High Watch uh, in uh, Kent, Connecticut. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks up there after going to detox in the local hospital, and uh, and I'm calling my friend King, who I. Uh, King was a philosophy teacher uh, here at local university, Jesuit University, Fairfield University, which I graduated from in 1966. But I, I in 73, I started taking night classes uh, just because I wanted to get the gray matter going again. And I, I stumbled on this guy, King Dykeman, who was teaching uh, philosophy classes. And every time he taught at night, I took a class from him. Well, I end up in the hospital after a, a, a bad career of drinking, bad career of drinking, uh, my most dramatic um, Incident was I, I, I crashed the car and they never figured out if I went through the windshield or the side window, you know, and I, uh, I ruptured my spleen and came very close to dying. And as I was in the hospital, uh, they, they sent a, an AA blue coat into me because a, a doctor had walked up to me. One of the doctors on my surgical team walked up to me uh, late in my, uh, my time in the hospital. And he said, uh, son, my name is Dr. Blansfield and I'm an alcoholic and you're an alcoholic. And if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. <laughs> So I had no intention of stopping drinking, but they brought in this AA volunteer, um, old Dudley, and he was trying to talk to me about going to AA and stopping drinking, and I didn't want to hear it, but I had these philosophy books next to my bedside table because I was taking a class with King Dykeman, and he said to me, what are you, he was trying to make conversation, he said, what are you doing with those books? And I, so I started telling him about this unbelievable, the smartest man I knew walking on the face of the earth, King Dykeman, and he got this little smile on his face, and he said, oh yeah, King, he's, he's one of our boys. Well, King had been sober 25 years at that point, and he became my sponsor. 
um, about a, a year and a half later when I actually did come back into alcohol, came, came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so King was this tremendous influence in my life. And, uh, and he and I were, you know, I said, I go to four meetings a week. I, he and I were probably riding to three of those meetings uh, every, every week. And uh, I don't know, I just, um, I'll tell you one, one way I like, I, I don't like to spend a lot of time on my drunk log because uh, I, I'm much more interested in sobriety and how people get sober and how people stay sober than how they got here, you know? Believe me, I was a daily drunk, fall down, pass out drunk. You know, I went to work every day, but I smelled bad and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I wasn't very sharp. I would have to go out and have a couple of beers at lunch just to take the edge off if I got that far. Um, I, I, you know, I was just, I, I was, I was dreadful in my first marriage. I treated that woman who deserved a way, way, way better treatment. I was just, I was just, there was, you know, again, I can go in all kinds of details. Doesn't make any difference. The point is on December 7th, 1981, I woke up, I took a shower. It was a Monday. I was going to go to work and, uh, and I uh, took a shower and I shaved and I got dressed and I got back in bed. It had been a bad weekend. Let me tell you folks, it had been a bad weekend. And uh, I was in such despair, I decided I needed to kill myself. Not, we're not talking one of those philosophical, whimsical, abstract things. I, I mean, I lived in an apartment with a gas stove and I thought all I had to do was turn on the gas and put a couple of wet towels under the doors and uh, I'd uh, kill myself. And at the last second, my sister had gotten sober five months sober, uh, five months earlier. And I called my sister and I went over to see her and she ended up calling King and King talked me into going to uh, the detox and then going to high watch. And when I, when I got out, I started to go into meetings and I, I started going to meetings with King. And uh, so if in fact the, if in fact the, solution to my problem as an alcoholic, as Bill Wilson diagnoses it in our big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, is to have a vital spiritual experience. One of the ways I can understand my sobriety is to look at the things that I went through that I consider today to have been uh, steps in that direction. It's an incremental. It was uh, what, what, what Bill says in, in the spiritual appendix, uh, the, the educational variety, which he, he attributes to William James, and no one has ever found that quote in William James, but that's Bill Wilson. He's not, he was never a scholar, so we'll let that slide. Um, I can remember being two or three months, two or three months, uh, two or three weeks out of uh, High Watch, the rehab, and uh, and I'm at my home group, the Stratford men's group, and uh, I've just come out of the beginner's room and, and King's introducing to me all these happy guys. And, uh, and I'm like, I, I, I made a radically important spiritual decision standing there. I, it wasn't really a conscious thing. It was a visceral thing. I thought to myself, I want to be a part of this group and I'm going to do whatever it needs to do to become a part of this group. Now, I was a guy who was working on the lonely genius model. You know, I was the lone wolf kind of guy. That's what I, I really believed in that American self-reliance, that whole autonomy thing. Personally, I think autonomy is not the solution. It's the problem for most things in human life in the 21st century, but that's another, that's another talk I could be given. Um, so all of a sudden, I, I can still point to the linoleum squares I was standing on when I, when I had what I think of as this, this, this first spiritual awakening piece. And that was I wanted to be a part of and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was I made a decision then and there I was going to do whatever I needed to do to become a part of it. 
because it was such an attractive thing to me and because my life was in such a mess up to that point. Um, so uh, that was that was certainly one thing. One of the, one of the other things that you know, there's these two different styles I think of of AA and AA meetings in general. Uh, there's there's the suggestive style and the directive style. Uh, my home group is a directive group, and uh, that doesn't work for you. That's plenty. That's fine. You can go to all the meetings in the next town, Westport. They have a lot of suggestive meetings there, and if that's what you need, and if that's what works for you, that's fine. It, there's there's no right way or wrong way here. But what worked for me and what I needed was was a, a very directive thing. And my home group, as I said, is very very directive. So uh, you know, it's a, it's a question of doing what you're told. Your sponsor tells you to do something, you just do it. You just do it. And uh, so uh, another great spiritual awakening for me was I was uh, I was uh, not quite five years sober. And this, this woman walked into my Saturday morning step meeting a half an hour late. And uh, I was like, oh my God, look at that. that now, now that's a, that, whoa, that's, yeah, oh, okay. And we were going around the room. We go around the room at the meetings I go to. And, and I was thinking to myself, please, God, when it gets to that woman, let her have four years of sobriety. We don't want her to have more time than me, but we need her to have more than a year. But it would be nice if she had four years of sobriety and she had just moved here from Rhode Island. And it, and it got to her and she said, hi, my name is Sarah and I'm six days sober. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. And uh, six days sober. Six day. And I've got to tell you folks, on both sides, the electricity across the room was palpable. I mean, you could get a shock if you put your, your hand up in the middle of that thing. And uh, But in my group, we were very directive and you don't, you don't uh, bird dog women who have less than a year of sobriety. And, and, and if you think staying away from a very hot and willing looking woman for 359 days isn't a spiritual experience, then you and I have different definitions of spiritual experiences. And I waited 359 days in one minute on her one year anniversary at 12.01 in the morning, we met, I kissed her for the first time and we've been together ever since. The Lady Sarah is now 35 years sober. So, um, and I, I consider that spiritual. I was uh, six years sober and I used to bitch and moan a lot about the whole God thing. I was very vocal about it. Uh, I had a lot of trouble with it. And uh, I don't remember what, what we must've been on the 11th step and I was bitching to my friend King my sponsor King about prayer. You know, I was, I'm very much of the Jim Morrison. You cannot petition the Lord with prayer school. And, uh, and I was being pretty vocal and arrogant about that. And he had just had it up to here and he got in my face and he said, listen, the proper position for a man who's begging for sobriety is on his knees. And I want you to get on your knees every morning. I don't care what you do on your knees. I want you to get on your knees every morning. So when I was six years sober, I started getting on my knees every morning, and uh, and I I said, uh, my name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic, and I don't want to drink today, and I'm glad I didn't drink yesterday. With the help of our fellowship and the twelve steps, our spiritual program of action, and that's what I started off saying on my knees every morning, and I've been getting on my knees. I don't think I missed, I don't think I missed twenty days in the last thirty three years. Getting, I, I know I haven't missed 20 days. It's just part of my morning ritual. You know, I get out of the shower, I get on my knees and I come back and dry my hair and, and shave. You know, I mean, I, I brush my teeth every day. I take a shower every day. I get on my knees every day. 
and uh, I've been doing that ever since. Um, but my group, my group was really a fellowship group, and I, I don't downplay the importance of fellowship in, in sobriety. It was for me to go from a guy who didn't join anything to be a real part of, to all of a sudden not having a, 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 a indiv an individualist approach to my life, but a collectivist approach to my life, a, you, you know, I, I, a communitarian approach. I like that word, communitarian. Um, was was just it was what kept me sober and I just loved it man I just didn't know how anybody who didn't go to the Stratford men's group stayed sober because that's where my group was those were my people and I was a part of that group um, but Sarah Sarah was always getting these uh, in those days we had cassette tapes she was always getting these speaker tapes and we listened to them in the car and uh, I was just amazed all these California people most of them are California people the big circuit speakers over here are California people they're all coming out of Clancy's uh, Pacific group. And, uh, and they're all talking about the big book. All the time they're talking about the big book. The big book. <clears throat> I had read the big book when I was in High Watch, when I was two weeks sober. You can imagine how much, how much penetration and uh, how much I understood of the book at the time, uh, which is about zero. And, and in my group, people were not, we were not doing the steps. We were not paying a lot of attention to the steps. And we were not paying any attention to the book. So anyhow, finally, I was, I was, uh, I was uh, 19 years sober and I decided it was time to, uh, I should be reading the book. I st so I started to try reading the book. But again, <clears throat> spiritual awakening, I realized I had lost my skill set for doing things by myself. And I, I finally realized I needed to start a meeting. So we started a meeting on the big book and uh, we started reading the first 164 pages slowly, a page or a page and a half. And then we talk about it. Uh, my personal opinion, is if you can't get a meeting topic out of any page of the first 164 pages, you're just not reading it carefully enough. So um, the second time through, so all of a sudden I'm, I'm reading the big book and the second time through, I had this story about uh, Jim who puts the whiskey in his milk, you know, and more about alcoholism. I love that story. It's my favorite story in the entire book. But before Jim puts the whiskey in his milk, um, the, the, the page before the elders, such as they were in those days, since the most sober man in Alcoholics Anonymous when the book was published was only, you know, four years, it was five years sober. Jesus, he was four years sober. I'm sorry, he was four years sober. Um, but the elders were saying that Jim's problem was that he, quote, failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And that really, really caught my attention the second time we were going through the book. And I started thinking that about that a lot. And I, I you know, it's like, so what, the, what does that mean to me, mean to me, an unbeliever? Um, if, if I were to pay attention to and work on enlarging my spiritual life. And um, at the, sometime around the same time, I heard a speaker tape and the guy said, he said, um, identify the places where you encountered God and go there often. Now, the God thing didn't work for me, but I, I just morphed that immediately into identify the places where you encounter the spiritual and go there often. And I thought that sounded like a pretty simple, straightforward, clear way to approach this problem I had posed for myself. How does, how does a non-believing guy uh, enlarge his spiritual life? And so I got my radar up, as it were, about, about where I felt I was encountering spirituality. And that was happening, uh, and I was stumbling over places, you know? Most of it was in relation, to, I mean, it was in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and it was it was, uh, it was with, with people I sponsored and, and with my sponsor and, and quite frankly, with my wife. We have, a, we have a, a profoundly 
spiritual relationship. And uh, I don't know, you know, the, the, the craziest thing to my mind and to most people's mind, when they talk about spiritual, they all just think it's got, it's got to be deity related, supreme being related. And uh, Bill Wilson certainly believed that when he wrote We Agnostics. But, uh, but I, I don't believe that. And uh, I was riding home. I used to travel to the West Coast all the time. I live in uh, Connecticut on the East Coast um, all the time to uh, California for business. And uh, I was driving home from JFK. It's a, like an hour, hour drive uh, one night late. The plane was late. So it's, it's like 1.30 in the morning. And I'm going through Stanford, Connecticut, halfway home. And uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge Eric Clapton fan, and I think Derek and the Dominoes was the greatest studio album ever produced in the history of the world. And I've got, I've got, I've got that album on, and I got it cranked all the way up, going through Stanford, and they get to this song "Key to the Highway," which is this unbelievable electric guitar duel. And uh, and I'm just, I'm just, I feel like I'm, I, I've only heard this song two thousand times. It's just one of the most brilliant pieces. And I'm just, I'm so ecstatic. I'm just, I feel like I'm going to explode. I'm so. I don't know what the right word is, happy listening to this thing. And, uh, and I thought to myself, holy crap, William, you're having a spiritual experience here with Derek and the Dominoes, you know? And, uh, and I, I do consider that. If it gets me out of myself, if it gets me out of myself, and I was definitely out of myself in that moment, then uh, I consider that spiritual. And there's, so I have a very broad umbrella of how I understand spirituality. Um, I... Uh, in 2003, <clears throat> we had heard about these groups in Texas that did what they called step work groups. They would get 10 people together, men or women, and they would go through the steps. They would actually do the steps. They had to read them and study the steps, but it wasn't a study group, it was a work group. And uh, we knew too, because Sarah knew a woman down there and I knew a guy down there. So I wrote to these people and we, and we got a couple of sets of uh, instructions on how to do a step work group. One of them was six pages long, one of them was eight pages long. Now, if you go to the stratfordmens.org, you will find a 116 page Stratford Men's Step Work Group Guide. It's designed for 10 people to get together for 18 weeks in a row and actually do the steps. And quite frankly, uh, we've been doing that <clears throat> since 2003 up here and it seems to me that it is most, it works fabulously well for beginners. It really does. It's fabulous for beginners. They get through this thing after 18 weeks. They know what it says in the book and they know what the steps are about. But in my opinion, it is most effective for people with more than 20 years of sobriety that need a little kick in the ass on their program. And that was certainly my case at the time. So if you'd like to check that out, go to stratfordmens.org and, um, the step work group guide is there. Um, and I basically, I wrote the step work group guide with, I had, I had one serious critic editor, my friend and my sponsor these days, Stuart Whiteside, but I basically wrote that. So we did the steps and I had never, honest to God, I'm 21 years sober. I'd never really done the steps, not all the way through. Hadn't really done the steps, hadn't made amends to things that I should have made amends to decades before. I'm not recommending this sort of slow recovery to anybody. I'm just trying to tell you, who I am and how it worked for me. So I did all of that stuff. I did all those steps. Uh, I, I, I did a, a really good fifth step. I did a really good ninth step. Uh, and uh, that was a big turning point for me. 
when, when, I, when, I, when I talk about my life in sobriety, the first most important thing was I stopped drinking on December 7th, 1981. And the second most important thing was I did a step work group guide when I was 21 years sober. The third most important thing I've done was when I was 26 years sober, I started meditating on a daily basis. Now I have a friend, so I told you I'm traveling to California for business. <clears throat> I'm out in, uh, out in south of LA, or what they call the South Bay area of Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach and Redondo Beach. And uh, I'm out there just with regularity. I get hooked up with some AA guys out there. I'm going to AA meetings. And one of the guys uh, and his wife, they're just really, really big on this meditation thing. You know, and I'm, I'm like, his wife, Adele, my friend Jay's wife, Adele, gets in my face one time because she's, they're trying to talk to me nicely about how I should start having a meditation practice, and I'm blowing them off. And she gets in my face and she says, Shaver, you can't get healthy, sane, and sober on 11 and a half steps. It's like, whoa, Jesus Christ, stand down, lady. Um, and I, I still didn't meditate after that. Probably a year and a half, I didn't meditate. But uh, I'm also a rare book dealer, and I'm, I'm out there doing a rare book show uh, in LA and Jay says, why don't I come pick you up uh, and take you to a meeting? Now he's been trying to get me to this Thursday meditation meeting for about five years and I was never in LA and free on, uh, on those days. He picks me up, it's a Thursday. I don't see I'm getting sandbagged. He picks me up and he drives me 45 minutes to Manhattan Beach and takes me to this meditation meeting. He apologizes for the, for the, the small crowd. There's only 40 people there. It's, it's Valentine's day. So we only have 40 people here and they meditate and then they, the topic that night was what books are you reading to help you with your meditation practice? And they go around the room and people are talking about, and I was, I was flabbergasted. I didn't know anybody, anybody other on the East coast. I didn't know anybody who, who had a daily meditation practice, none. And, uh, but here's all these people in California that are serious about, it. they're actually doing this thing. I mean, they're doing it. And I mean, it, it was clear to me listening to them. That was an AA thing, not some whack job, west coast california thing you know it was an aa thing so i got back home and i i just bored my wife and my sponsor came crazy for two weeks talking about it i was just flabbergasted the impact that had that meeting had on me so i uh i finally thought well maybe i should try and meditate <clears throat> maybe i should actually try and do this so i called my friend jay and uh i i need i didn't know i didn't know a single person in alcoholics anonymous on the east coast of the united states of america who had a regular meditation practice not one and i knew i don't know somewhere between 500 and a thousand people in aa a very well connected guy in aa and uh so anyhow jay suggested i try reading eckhart tolle's the power of now he knew it was non-denominational it might might resonate with me and i did that and i but I, I, again, just as with reading the book, I, I had lost my skill set for individual initiative, it seems. So I started, after a couple of weeks, I, I started a meditation meeting. We got a dozen people to come to that meditation meeting, and, uh, and I started having a daily meditation practice. And I've done that um, for 13 years now. Uh, I, I sat for 15 minutes this morning. My, my grandson, I call him my grandson, he's, not, he's 25 years old. But he was in town uh, for a couple of weeks and he's been coming over every morning. He said, can I come over and sit with you in the morning? So he comes over and we talk for about 20 minutes and then we sit and meditate for 15 minutes together. That's just beautiful. I was trying to go, Jay, Jay was clear that I had to, I should be trying to sit in the morning and in the evening. And I just couldn't get the evening thing going for six or seven months. I was just not doing it. And finally, I, one of the things I believe is that if you're trying to get a new habit, the easiest way to get a new habit established is to uh, package it with an old habit. So 
one of the reasons why I get on my knees between the shower and the drying of the hair and the shave is because I do those things every morning. And, and so there's the old habits. And now I got a new habit. I get on my knees every morning. So finally, I, I told the lady Sarah one, one night that uh, we were having dinner. I said, listen, I, you know, I, I'm really not making any headway with this nighttime thing. So, but the thing I do every night is have dinner. I have dinner every night. So I'm, what I'm planning on doing is I'm going to go down and meditate for 15 minutes after dinner. And she said, can you, can you wait until I clean up the kitchen? And so, um, yeah, we've been meditating together for 15 minutes every night for, God, I don't know. That was probably when I was six months into my meditation practice or maybe a year. So we've been, we've been doing that for quite a while. And that was the third most, that was a big turning point for me in my sobriety and my understanding of my sobriety. Um, so I, I think the takeaway here is that um, despite the fact that there are no supernatural powers or supreme beings in my life, I do believe that, that, that you know, the, Jim's, Jim's problem was he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And I think it's really important. I think, I think the enlargement of the spiritual life is, in my opinion, what's kept me away from a drink. First, as, as a member, of, a, a really active and enthusiastic member of fellowship. And, and, and then in relation to these other things, um, and actually, actually doing the steps and, and, uh, and getting on my knees and, and, and getting a meditation practice. Now, all of that stuff took decades to come to full fruition, but there it is. That's, I'm a slow learner. And sometimes I got to be dragged to things, kicking and screaming with my heels dragging along the floor. Um, but I, but I, I think these days, I think that the crux of the whole deal is the third step and the 11th step. And, and when I say that to people who know my lack of traditional theological beliefs, they, they find that a little hard to believe, or they find that a little hard to understand. And uh, I got to tell you, I, uh, so I, I mentioned that I probably spent six or seven years arguing about the God thing all the time. Anytime it came up in meetings, which comes up with some regularity. <clears throat> and, uh, and I stopped doing that for a while. And when I stopped doing that, I realized again, in, in terms of the third step, that, that it, it wasn't so much the, I, I knew a bunch of guys who had really good lives and who seemed to be doing this thing. And, and what they were doing, I realized, had something very strict in common, although their belief that God, as they understood them, was different. All five or six of those guys had completely different understandings of, of that. But what they were doing was <clears throat> they were turning it over. They were turning things over in their life. They were just turning things over. They were, they were detaching themselves from it and turning things over. <clears throat> now, so I worked with that, but I'm a word guy. I'm a writer. And, uh, you know, if you're turning something over, you got to be turning it over to something. I mean, it's implied in the words that that's going on there. So that was always a problem and an issue for me. What, what the hell is, I could never figure out what would be a happy, okay, I'm going to turn this over to this or that or the other thing. So I, after a few years, I got to the point where uh, I was listening to uh, a guy and he said, what, what's this all about is letting go. So I was doing the letting go thing. Oh, that's cool. I can do that. If I can let go, that's what they're talking about in this third step. They're talking about just me letting go of stuff. And I did that for a couple of, couple of decades, actually. And uh, before I, my, my Buddhist teacher, my wife and I go to a, a Buddhist sangha every Thursday night, or we were before the COVID thing. 
and uh, she had recommended a book for me, which I really, really disliked. It was one of those Tibetan Buddhist books, and I'm not wild about it. The Tibetans are the Roman Catholics of Buddhism. But anyhow, that's another bit. I, uh, but what this guy said was, he said, the turn it over thing, when you got the turn it over thing going, you just, it's yours, and you, and I'm sorry, you, uh, you're letting go thing. You got the letting go thing, it's yours, and you're going to let it go. It's yours, and you're going to let it go. And he said, the problem with that is you've always got this thin thread stuck to it because it's yours and you can always pull it back. So the letting go thing is, is something of a problem. He said, what you need to do is let it be. Let it be. Just let it be. Now, if you're letting it be, it's over there. It's got nothing to do with you at all. It's just let it. Just forget about it. It's, you've got no control over it. You got It's just let it be. It's not yours at all, dude. And that worked for a whole bunch of uh, while for me for a long time. So, but then just the COVID thing, the COVID thing was really interesting for me because um, I don't know, my meditations just seem to be more insightful a couple of times, more frequently. Uh, I've been getting on my knees every morning for probably 25 of the last years. I get on my knees in the morning and I say, good morning to this day and welcome to everything that this day holds for me personally. And I think that's as good a third step prayer as you could possibly get. Good morning to this day and to everything that this day holds for me personally, welcome. And when I would talk about that, I would say, I do that on my knees in the morning. Sarah bought me one of these little old Roman Catholic kneelers that we've got up against things. So I'm, I'm not, I'm an old guy. I don't have to go down all the way on the floor. And uh, I would get up off the kneeler and go back into the into the bathroom and shave. And 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 if I cut myself, I'd be cursing and swearing and thinking, dude, what happened to that? Welcome to everything, no matter what. You know, just because you cut yourself shaving, it's like the world ended or something. You know, and I would freak out. Um, and when I was meditating, I, I've been I've told that I've told that story on myself uh, a number of times, but. Uh, when I was when I was meditating uh, in October, I, I caught myself being hypocritical in what I was saying every morning because I wasn't doing it past that point. I just wasn't actively doing it past that point. So in October, I started a new practice, and and my new practice is anytime I catch myself being annoyed or angry or upset or in pain over something, I say welcome out loud, welcome, and I probably say welcome on the average, out loud, 10 times a day, because something's always pissing me off or not going the way I want it to go, or, you know, it's just what it is. But again, I think I think being able to say welcome, um, sometimes I mean it, and sometimes I'm really just saying it because I told myself I was gonna say it, and I'm having a hard time accepting it. But, uh, but I do still believe, I, I think it's kind of boiled my understanding of the third step down to that single word is really working for me. You know, one of my uh, one of the one of the Buddhist teachers I love and I read is uh, Joko Joko Beck, Charlotte Joko Beck. She's she's just a fabulous writer. And um, Joko Beck, you know, the Buddha talks about dukkha, which is traditionally translated into English as suffering, which is just completely wrong. It doesn't even capture a, most of what the Buddha was trying to say. Um, but I mean, I personally, I think you know, a better translation of dukkha would be restless, irritable, and discontent. <laughs> That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to get away from is restless, irritable, and discontent. But uh, Joko Beck says, 
anytime you say something goes on in the day and you say it shouldn't be this way, if you say it shouldn't be this way, that's dukkha. That's what it is. You're, you're in a place of uncomfortableness because you don't think it should be this way. So uh, anytime I catch myself saying it shouldn't be this way, I say welcome and, uh, and try to mean it as much as possible. And I say it out loud. And that's, that's really, really, really helpful to me. So, uh, okay. Tried to talk about me and my sobriety, my journey in sobriety. And uh, I think that covers most of the high points that I was thinking of and that I wanted to cover. So I think I'll end it right there. Thank you all very much.